What a customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Food and Beverage Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and boy, always good to be behind the mic, chatting powerful changes and trends in the restaurant and agricultural industries. Today, we're getting two very insightful features. We're getting insight from a powerful marketing thought leader in food and beverage. He's a self-proclaimed leading French fry historian. This is a a fabulous guy. I love chatting with him, Mr. Rev Chancho. We'll dig in a little more into what he's bringing to the table today. Pun intended there for sure, but he's going to break down his six recipes for restaurant marketing success. These are definitely tips that any restaurant owner should be getting into, um, or even just any restaurant influencer, food and beverage influencer. If you're trying to make a name for yourself, here's how you can brand yourself and market yourself to really succeed. So that's coming up on today's show. We'll also be previewing the Young Chef Olympiad. This is one of the industry's most well-renowned and path-carving events for aspiring industry professionals. It's a relatively new event, started in 2015, but its impact has already been felt across the world. So it's a podcast episode chock full of great content on how individuals and companies are finding ways to succeed and nab inspiration in the food and beverage industry. But before that, I got to shout out a personal trend of mine that I've indulged in my travels across the country. Um, This may seem a little random, but I got to shout out hot dog restaurants. Why am I shouting on hot dog restaurants? Well, recently I went to Ohio for a concert um, and I also studied at the University of Missouri and in both of those instances when I traveled to and fro, I was looking for some hot dog restaurants. And when I talk about hot dog restaurants, I mean the gourmet sit-downs where you're getting a very special kind of hot dog. Could be bacon-wrapped, could be topped with banh mi, um, you know, whatever it is. I just love this trend that I'm seeing in a lot of, I guess, hip towns is what I would call it, um, for a gourmet hot dog. Um, In Joplin, Missouri, it was Instant Karma. In Columbus, Ohio, it was Dirty Frank's. And I know there are way more. I'm just naming the two that I've visited personally. But I love the diverse spread, great toppings, and I just love seeing that hot dogs, especially when you get from city to city, begin to represent the culture of that town or the culture that has influenced that town because you start seeing toppings and you start seeing menu items that have nothing to do with Ohio, but they are representative of cultures that have come and flourished in that city. And I think this trend of gourmet hot dog restaurants and the sit-down ones, especially restaurants that specialize in only gourmet hot dogs, well, they're a big favorite of mine, but I think they're also a good representation of a simple idea that can take off. And I think restaurant owners can look to these gourmet hot dog restaurants as indication that you don't need a menu spread with hundreds of different styles of entrees to be successful or to even appeal to the masses. You know, you don't you don't have to have the pastas and the the steaks 
and the, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, we're talking like Jack in the Box, right? They have egg rolls and tacos, right? You don't need the full spread. Sometimes variations on one good idea are just as poppin'. So I just had to shout out these gourmet hot dog restaurants that I've seen popping up more recently and finding a lot of success. Um, and I'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes peeled for next time I'm in a new city. Gotta try some gourmet hot dogs. Okay, so enough on that. Let's transition over to a thought leader who'd rather focus his attention on fries, not gourmet hot dogs. So for our first feature, we sit down with Rev Chancho. He's been on our podcast before, but he's the director of industry insights at Yext. And he's also a senior marketing executive and brand evangelist. But most importantly, he's a real ear to the ground influencer on 21st century trends within food and beverage. Probably the most exciting part of his long resume is he operates the most popular fries-focused Instagram account. It's called Fun with Fries. It has over 150,000 followers, and uh, gotta love pictures of cheese-loaded fries. I definitely tune in uh, basically every day because fries power me. They're my fuel. And Rev Chancho, he knows his way around how to brand yourself for success in the industry. He joins us on the podcast today to give us his tips for restaurant marketing success. From social media to powerful reviews, he's giving his six recipes for restaurant marketing success. Let's connect. Okay, joining me now for a follow-up appearance on the podcast is Rev Ciencio. He's a senior marketing strategist, a brand manager, and uh, if you listen to his last appearance, you know he's also an expert burger taster and an aspiring leader in French fry history. Rev, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the podcast again today. It's really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's one of my favorite introductions I think I've ever gotten, so thank you for that. <laughs> that's uh, that's my goal. You know, I, I just want to adequately represent uh, your full profile here uh, as you join the podcast again. And uh, part of the reason for having you back on is you have an ebook out right now. Now called Six Recipes for Restaurant Marketing Success. And uh, I'm not somebody that uh, works in the restaurant industry or the food and beverage or hospitality industry. Uh, but as I read it, I feel like I learned a ton about myself as a consumer and my habits, right? So, I, you know, you had little factoids in there that I had never really heard about myself before. Uh, so it was really interesting to get to learn uh, some of those things, and all of them I found to be pretty much true. So uh, we're going to walk through those six recipes for restaurant marketing success here on the podcast today. Um, and uh, But I wanted to give you an opportunity real quick just to kind of intro the book, because if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't downloaded the book, uh, you should go do that, f you know, and, and read along kind of as we uh, cover these topics because it's it's absolutely fascinating. But I wanted to give you a quick uh, opportunity just to intro the book and kind of talk a little bit about it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the pitch to your listeners and the opportunity to speak about it. Um, you know, I've been in some form of of marketing or hospitality marketing, and you know, I used to own a bar restaurant for a long time. And I, I realized I realized when I owned a, a restaurant, I was actually very bad at running them, uh, but I was really good at marketing them. And so I sort of rededicated my career to helping other restaurant marketers with their daily life. And the book was written from me understanding what kind of problems and challenges a restaurant owner or restaurant marketer faces and what I can help them to understand in terms of, hey, these are the six things that you should really be concerned about that you might not be already. Like, you know, people understand, you know, 
good service or they might be thinking about posting to Instagram or they might do traditional things like buying advertisement. But these are like, these are the six things that you should be looking at today in 2019 and beyond, whether you're a multi-location or a single location brand. And it, it is, it is meant to help somebody help guide somebody for digital marketing and hospitality. Yeah, and I think this is really great because it's a, it's a comprehensive look at things. And so uh, we're just going to start walking through these six points here. And the first of which is Map Pack. And uh, you have a little factoid in the book that I thought was really interesting. It said, according to Google, near me searches on mobile devices increased 146% year over year, which is fascinating to me. And it's absolutely true of myself. I search that all the time, just, uh, you know, whether it's uh, I want noodles, you know, noodles near me, that sort of thing. Uh, that's really increased. And so having something like a Map pack. Uh, first of all, what is it and how can restaurants use it? It's a great question. So, you know, when you're searching for a local business, specifically in Google, what returns, right? You typically get a picture of a map and three or four selections, or you get the knowledge card, which is the same thing, but for one business. And, you know, the magic question is, how does your restaurant get into the map pack? How does Google know what answers to give? And if you as a restaurant marketer or owner understand how the map path works and how Google selects a business, right? You can better uh, position your restaurant to be the answer that Google gives in that map pack. And, you know, I don't know what the stat is in terms of uh, how many people click on an option they get that's not in the map pack, but it's probably pretty low. So <laughs> getting into that map pack is a really, really important thing for a restaurant when somebody is searching, you know, noodles near me or, you know, best pizza in my neighborhood, whatever. Uh, and so that, that section of the book is intended to teach somebody how does Google choose which businesses to answer with and what you need to do as a restaurant to be that answer. Why was it number one uh, on the list of six? Was it intentional that it's number one? Is this the base for the other five that come along after it? Uh, or is there a different reasoning for that? Uh, no, it's intended to be first because if people can't find your restaurant online, none of the other things matter. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, number two here on the list is reviews. And that's something that we talked a lot about uh, in your previous appearance on the podcast was just online reputation management quite a bit and, and handling reviews and that sort of thing. And you have a, a stat in the book that says that uh, according to a Harvard Business School study, a one star increase in Yelp rating leads to a five to nine percent increase in revenue. Uh, so that's that's a pretty big jump. And that, that really highlights the uh, the importance of reviews online uh, to restaurants. Yeah, and I, we kind of talked about this last time, but you know, I think everybody realizes the importance of customer service aspect of reviews. You know, like, hey, you said something nice about my restaurant, I'm gonna say thank you, or you said something really nasty about my restaurant, and I need to go defend myself. I think everybody understands that. <laughs> but what I think a lot of restaurant marketers don't understand, and what the book tries to explain going back to number one, the map pack, is that reviews have like insane SEO benefits. Um, one of the factors that Google uses in determining which answers to put in the map pack is public reputation. They use the word prominence. And basically what Google is saying is that they rank businesses on the internet against each other based on their ratings and reviews. So as a restaurant brand or restaurant marketer, if you're not harnessing the power of reviews, you, you're like, Again, leave the customer service side out of it. We get that already, right? But you're you're literally not going to be found in search if you don't have a good reputation, right? And so you have to manage your reviews. And then with that, and the book gets into this, is there's unbelievable amounts of insights and analytics available from your reviews that can not only inform 
um, you know, changes and upgrades that you can make to your business, but also just like, how do your customers really feel about you? What's the sentiment? And, and so, you know, I really think reviews is sort of the magic sauce in restaurant marketing because of the data and analytics and SEO benefits. Absolutely. Uh, always good to know what people are saying about you. You know, that's, that's uh, an important thing to know uh, for restaurants, I think. Now, the third item is probably the one that I didn't, I was the least familiar with. Uh, third item on the list, uh, because Map Pack, that makes sense. You know, people have to be able to find you. Reviews, obviously, like y- you have to know these things and you get so many different benefits from it, like you mentioned, SEO and other demographic data. Uh, but schema is the third uh, item on the list. And my interpretation of it is that it's, it's basically the vocabulary of search engines and it allows Google and Bing and other search engines to be able to actually find use and then identify what you are. Uh, is that basically an explanation of schema? How would you describe uh, what this is and, and how it's so important for restaurants? Well, Tyler, you're practically a schema expert with that, uh, oh, that yes. description there. <laughs> but yeah, it is the language of search engines. Um, and, and so Google, Yahoo and Bing got together, I don't remember when, and said basically like, look, we're gonna we're gonna agree that search needs to be spoken in in this programmatic way, and that will help us index the world's information. They make that code available, right? So if you can put perfect schema on your website, you are perfectly communicating to the search engines what type of business you are, what hours you're opening, you know that you have a menu, what's on your menu, all these things that like are searchable that people need to make decisions. And that's called schema and putting schema markup on your website allows your website to speak perfect internet language. And you're like, what is the benefit of that? Okay. Google and Yahoo and Bing specifically are going to reward a business in search. If it's easy to find the information that they need, that their people who are using the search engines are looking for. Right. So if you think about it in terms of a customer customer funnel, right. I'm hungry, I'm searching for lunch, I've entered best tacos near me, right? Your taco shop looks good, I've chosen it. You, you nailed the map pack, right? I, I look at your reviews, everybody seems to think the carnitas are great. Okay, boom, we're there, right? But I'm not done. I wanna know how much things cost. I need to get reservations. Maybe I need directions. Maybe I need to know if you take Apple Pay. Maybe I'm bringing my kids and I need to know if you're kid friendly. Maybe I can't go unless I have Wi-Fi because I'm doing a presentation. Well, schema allows you to take all of that information and put it on your website in a way that the search engines don't need to take any time to find those information that people are looking for. So a perfectly schema marked up website is a perfect, the only way to send a perfect signal to the search engines about all these facts about your business that people need to know. My description of schema came directly from the book. So, uh, <laughs> any, any expertise that I appear to have, uh, came only from reading that, uh, that particular section of the book, uh, and trying to uh, do my best to parrot back what it says. So again, another plug, go read the actual, uh, ebook. It's, uh, it's very, very helpful on that. The fourth item, uh, on the menu here is location pages. Uh, and you say that every restaurant has information that's specific to that particular location. What information goes in these location pages and, uh, and how can restaurants go about utilizing this, uh, this particular uh, recipe that you've listed here? So a location page is, is essentially a miniature website for a, a location. You know, so you're McDonald's and you have 34,000 stores. Well, you know, I only really care about McDonald's down the block from me 
and I only really need the information that's relative to me. Name, address, phone number, hours of operation, menu, specials, you know, Wi-Fi, all, all these other searchable public facts. Well, a location page takes all that relevant information to the customer and puts it all in one place. And a properly done location page also has schema markup. Right. The, the benefit that, again, is a you've spoken the perfect language of the Internet. You're giving customers exactly what they need when they need it. You're becoming more searchable. Right. But here, here's like a hidden trick that people don't think about. If you are a restaurant and let's say that you have an, you roll out three limited time offers per quarter, but not every store has them. Right. Or maybe they're only in certain markets. Well, you can go and place, you know, Google AdWords and Facebook AdWords against locations if you have a location page. So let's say that only the stores in Chicago have this special blueberry cake donut pop that you're creating. You can go place ads that are so localized, I can click out and go, dang, I need that blueberry cake pop donut and go right over to the page in my neighborhood. Right, absolutely. I, I, I do need that blueberry cake donut uh, pretty immediately, actually, <laughs> now that you mention it. But yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, just people being able to immediately find out information about that particular location that's in their neighborhood. Like, I don't need the location or the information of a uh, McDonald's in California. I live in Dallas, you know, so I need the one uh, right there down the street from me. Uh, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I need the relevant information for that. Right, and one, one, just to, I'm going to give you a, a, a case use. So there, there's a, a brand out there called uh, Fazoli's, and they're a fast, casual, or a QSR Italian place. Like you could basically drive through spaghetti. Great breadsticks. Yes, gr- super great breadsticks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very true. Um, they learned through testing that having a corporate menu, meaning like if you go to fazoli's.com uh, slash menus, right, it's not as valuable as if you go to fazolis.com slash Louisville and you see the Louisville store and the menu from the Louisville store is there, right? And, and so they actually deleted their corporate menu page because it delivered nothing, right? But then through schema markup and, and a number of other tools, they were able to have the menu for that location on each page. So when I go to the Louisville location page for Fazoli's, I have literally everything I need in one place as a customer. I have the menu, the hours, everything. And they were like, why are we going to publish a corporate menu? We now have the ability to localize menus because of these location pages. That's really interesting. I, I, I like that example and just learning more about that uh, because that's something I, I would never have thought of otherwise. Uh, number five, the, the fifth recipe for marketing success uh, is also something that I know about conceptually, but in my mind, uh, it, it's influencer marketing. And when I think of this, I think of like the Kardashians tweeting about a makeup <laughs> or something like that. So what does this look like in real life for restaurants when it comes to influencer marketing? Obviously, not everyone is using the Kardashians to post something on Instagram at their restaurant or something like that. So what does this look like for everyday restaurants that uh, that want to utilize influencer marketing? Well, that, that's a whole other podcast, but we'll, we'll get to the key points here. So we, we've covered so far in the book in this conversation, essentially like being found in search, right? People are looking for things. How do you capture them when they have the moment of intent? Okay. Influencer marketing to me is about top of mind awareness right? Or campaign-based awareness. So you're a restaurant and you're brand new. Well, how do you get attention? Well, you could put up a billboard, you could send out a press release, you could do tweets, uh, uh, you know, put out social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. You do all these things, right? 
But what I love about influencer marketing and why I think it's important is it delivers most reports I've seen like a 10 to 11 times ROI, right? So if I'm going to work with local influencers to tell you that I have a brand new restaurant open, right? Those influencers, again, assuming you can find the right influencers, have a curated audience of people that look to them for restaurant recommendations. Where should I be eating? What do I food do I need to know about? Where am I going to go get lunch on Friday? And influencer marketing allows you to team up with somebody who's built top of mind awareness for your category in a genuine and honest way. So like, look, I like French fries. And if you were to say, Rev, where should I go get French fries? You're going to listen to me because you know I have 150,000 followers on my French fry account. I might know a thing about French fries, right? I believe you. <laughs> Thank you. And, <laughs> and so you, in an influencer marketing scenario, a restaurant can leverage that audience by building top of mind awareness through their audience. So bring in the influencer, take the photo, share it to Instagram. Hey, I ate at this place. The steak here is great. You should check it out. Well, if you are following that influencer because you like their recommendations or they resonate with the types of things you like to eat, you're now going to know about that menu or you're going to know about that restaurant and they can save the photo and they can come back to it. And and I believe that uh, influencer marketing in a vacuum isn't so great, but influencer marketing when it's tied to a campaign goal like new menu launch, new store opening, uh, new cocktails, whatever, is a really great piece of the puzzle to plug in for awareness. And here's the thing. People are going to be suspect. Ah, I don't know about this. I haven't tried blah, blah, blah. But then they're going to tell me that they love Facebook advertising or that they love Google ads. Well, you know what? There's no ad blockers for influencer marketing, right? right if you right. follow me because you like French fries, there's nothing that blocks you other than Instagram's algorithm from, <laughs> from seeing it. But you could like and, – and if, so if you're going to go spend money on something, right, like Facebook ads or Google ads – and you know, 75% of your audience is not gonna see it, and you paid money, you're gonna be pretty angry, right? But if you go to an influencer, there's nothing to block them. There's there's nothing that gets in the way of that. People don't purposely go, oh, well, hey, Instagram, don't show me anything from f- people who recommend food. So now, I think a lot of people would be surprised to see social media number six on the recipes for restaurant marketing success. And uh, I, I read about it in the book, and I liked your explanation of it. Basically, that if you aren't doing the other five things, social media here as number six uh, really won't be as impactful as... Uh, maybe you would like for it to be, or you're missing out on what the rest of the world of marketing online can actually bring to your business. Is that? Would you say that that's an accurate statement? A hundred percent. So you know, you're, let's say you're you're a restaurant and you've spent all this money to develop a limited time offer. You know, it's your January sandwich of the month, and you've sent out press release and you've taken photos and you've posted to social and all these other things. And then I see that ad on Facebook or I see that influencer marketing post. And then I go over to Google and I search the restaurant and I can't find it. That's called a leaky budget. <laughs> and you're going to you're going to be pretty angry that you spent all this money and time and effort on that great social media post that got me to look at your restaurant or consider your menu. Right. And then I went over to Google and your hours of operation are wrong. I can't tell what credit cards you take. I can't even get the right directions because the address is wrong. Right. And so to me, like if you're going to do social media and I believe that social media is a very powerful way of marketing a restaurant, you have to be doing all these other things or you're throwing money in the in the gutter. And and the reason I included it in the book is if I didn't, people will go, well, how come social media is not in here? And the the book doesn't walk you through how to do social media for restaurants. There's a thousand other books on that. 
what it does is it, it explains where in your marketing stack social media should sit and how to use it in relation to awareness and where in the funnel it sits and how the channel works. So to me, and this is probably a little deeper than the book goes, uh, social media is not about finding new customers, right? It's about ensuring the customer journey, right? So like if I see that Tyler, who I now know really loves French fries, tells me French fries at this one restaurant are great. When I go to your social media, I better see French fries, <laughs> right? I, it's 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 not the baited hook. It's the fish store. I've already decided I want fish. Now show me the best fish you have. Those are the six recipes for restaurant marketing success. Map pack, reviews, schema, location pages, influencer marketing, and social media. By the way, if we didn't mention, you should go read the book. Oh, and also it's free. So just go download it. It's so easy. Uh, and uh, Rev Ciancio uh, is one of the co-authors of the book. He's a senior marketing strategist, brand manager, expert burger chaser, leading French fry historian, and uh, expert on all things restaurant marketing. Rev, thank you so much for uh, making another appearance on the podcast. And I think that we've launched... A about 10 other things that we could talk about in the future. So I'm sure we'll have you back on uh, in the very near future. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I mean, look, the book is free. You can just, I'm sure you're probably going to link it up in the blog post. But if you're just listening, just Google six recipes for restaurant marketing success. It'll come up. I guarantee it. Uh, and Or you can tweet at me or Tyler. We'll send it to you. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it'll come up uh, pretty high in those search uh, results because uh, that's kind of what Rev does. <laughs> SEO, man. All right. So that is Rev Ciencio. Thanks again for joining the podcast today, man. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, and thank you everybody who's listening. I hope you find the book insightful. All right. Thanks again to Tyler Kern and to Rev Chancho for that great conversation. Always got to love talking to Rev. I mean, because how can you not take his word seriously with over 150,000 followers on Fry's account? I know when I first realized he wasn't just saying, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a social media influencer, brand influencer. He legitimately has one of the most popular Fry's Instagram accounts. I was definitely pretty blown away and I felt like I was in the presence of a celebrity. Gotta love it. Gotta love some great food instas. All right, so our second feature brings the heat back to the kitchen in a more competitive way. We're all familiar with cooking shows and competitions. In 2015, however, the sights were set by Dr. Suborno Bose on something that would have a more tangible effect on the industry, but still brought that spirit of competition and global solidarity. And thus, in 2015, the Young Chef Olympiad was born, based out of India, and has now been running strong for the past several years with participants from over 60 countries vying for the top spot as the next up-and-coming chef in the food and beverage industry. We speak today with founder and director of Kitchen Cut, John Wood. He's one of the judges for the 2019 Young Chef Olympiad and is a frequent market scale collaborator. And Wood breaks down on this podcast how childhood can influence a chef's style and skills, a few of the challenges that these young chefs will face over several rounds of competition, and most importantly, why a competition like this is more crucial than ever in today's industry climate. Let's hear from John Wood. Welcome to Market Scale Food and Beverage. I'm your host, Sean Heath. You know, I've always thought of food as a science that really doesn't get enough attention paid to it. I personally love science and I'm a big fan of eating. 
and yet I have been unable to crack the code of all of the combinations and chemical interactions that need to take place to really create fine cuisine. Usually, for me, it's another night of macaroni and cheese. Um, But my guest on the podcast today gets to combine not only science and food, but software. He is on the cutting edge, see what I did there, of the food and beverage phenomenon around the world. And of course, today I have the privilege of having a conversation with the founder and director of Kitchen Cut, John Wood. John, how are you today? Very well, Sean. Yes, thank you. The nerd in me really wants to talk just about software because Kitchen Cut is really cool. But I have to say, you're getting to be a judge in a competition that not a lot of people in the mainstream in the United States would be aware of, but it's kind of a big deal, and that's the Young Chef Olympiad. That's correct. I I judged last year. This is the fifth year, so I'll be doing the fourth and the fifth year. Um, At the moment, it always takes place in India, Um, and that's there's no reason for that. It's just that they can host... You know, 52 countries, uh, extremely easy over there and carry out such a, a, a large competition spread over India as well. So it's very exciting, yes. Now, as I was looking at the website, uh, ycolympiad.com, I noticed that three of the four recent winners were from Malaysia and Singapore. And then there was one winner, uh, Daniela Germond from Canada. So I'm curious, how much does the way someone grows up influence the way that they see and interact with food and beverage? Um, I think it's huge. I think, you know, where you live um, changes your approach to food, uh, most definitely. Uh, there is a sort of um, a connection there. And obviously, it depends hugely on your parents or the people who are looking after you and what their love or passion for food is, because that can flow down in, into your, your siblings and, and sorry, your, your children as well. Um, so it does have a huge effect. Uh, obviously, you know, you know, Asia and Southeast Asia are extremely passionate about their food, um, but it's not it's not reflective of why they win the competition. Uh, a lot of it is to do with um, you know structure and processes and being very organised and you know practicing a lot. So it's not indicative that you know it's it's those countries. It's probably more to do with how organised they are uh, that they can cook their dishes you know very very easily because um, they may have practiced twenty thirty times in the past before. Now I feel that the way that cooking competition shows present chefs I don't think is entirely fair because there is an amount of risk taking that is required in any reality cooking competition because it plays well for the cameras that's not what these young chefs are trying to accomplish in the Olympiad is it no they they know uh the first two rounds, they know exactly what they need to be cooking. So we will give them two classic dishes, uh, chicken chasseur and rum baba. We provided them with videos and recipes and everything for that. And all they need to do is replicate that and show us their culinary skills 
whilst they're in the kitchen doing those dishes and they're allowing them to follow uh, that they can follow a process a recipe and a method correctly the second round is to do with they provide us with one vegetarian dish and one authentic dish from their country uh, and they again could practice that numerous times which hopefully they have um, and they would then also know exactly what process, what timings that go behind that to make it absolutely perfect. However, the following rounds, that's more to do with, uh, once you get through to the next level, that's to do with then um, really showing the culinary skills because we give mystery ingredients and mystery boxes and they have to make a dish on the day and create something. So that's more a little bit like what you would see on TV, for example. Um, you would see that sort of uh, thrown in at the deep end and trying to come up with something as well as part of that. And I would think that the environment in which these chefs trained and learned would either enable them or hinder them in their opportunity to freestyle. I would imagine that it's a bit of a challenge for some of these chefs to really jump out of their comfort zone when it comes to time for the competition. Yeah, I totally agree. It, I mean, all of these chefs would have a mentor and typically that mentor would be a uh, highly qualified uh, chef instructor or trainer from a college or university from that particular country. So they're not going in completely blind. They are being coached and mentored through that. But obviously, there is better universities and colleges with better lecturers in there as part of that. And they may have a slight advantage uh, over some of the sort of smaller countries that have uh, gone into the competition as well. Now, this event is really an excellent glimpse to any aspiring food and beverage industry professional. This is a big deal. Oh, it's huge. I mean, this is, um, it doesn't get the global recognition it deserves, but that's growing because it's still a young competition at five years old. Um, and But it's slowly spreading and we're getting more and more countries come in each year. It is a big deal. You know, there's a great prize money. Uh, not that that's always the, the, the driver, but having that ability to win a competition with 52 countries competing all against each other, for that student then to go back to their country, they are elevated. They have the opportunities you know, thrown at them from you know, future employers uh, that could take them on as well because they've won that or even come second or third. It is a major thing for, for people you know, that are entering this competition. I would imagine there are countless stories of young chefs who could have really been something phenomenal and for one reason or another some issue out of their control steered them down the path and now they are working in construction or they became an accountant opportunities like this and competitions like this really increase the opportunity to continue in this field that really is a love for all of these competitors. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, there are a lot of people that have came into the industry that have then subsequently left, um, either because it was harder than they thought or more demanding uh, as part of that. And there is a huge chef shortage, you know, globally. 
you know, whether it's in the US, the UK, um, the, the Southeast Asia, it is really tough out there, you know, to find really good quality chefs. And, you know, that is good for if you are a chef, because you're always going to be in demand and you're always going to be employed. Uh, but it's tough for restaurateurs and hoteliers and people that are setting up restaurants to find good quality chefs. So even, you know, the, the way that it's, it's happened now, even if you're pretty good at what you do, you will always be able to get a job as, as part of that. However, the reason people leave, excessive hours, not great pay at the beginning of your career, and that puts people off quite quickly and they end up sort of throwing the towel in quite quickly. Talk to me a little bit about how events like this help prepare these chefs for the unique challenges that are presented when you try and run a kitchen in 2019. Um, the, the events like this is really to give them confidence in what they're doing and how they sort of structure. And being a chef is not just about cooking some nice food. Um, when you cook nice food, you're a great cook. Uh, when you run an organized, structured kitchen that's run on really strict time zones, because you may be doing in some restaurants maybe 150, 200 covers in a very short space of time. So it's all to do with timing and organization. And a competition like this is absolutely that. Not only does it test their culinary skills, but it also tests their timing and organizational skills as well, which is critical to running a top quality restaurant or hotel. And I think you give a very good distinction between being a good cook and being a great chef because they're not the same thing. Yes. I mean, it is very much. And, and some people who are who call themselves chefs, um, but all they really do is just cook on that day. I was proud to be a cook for, for many years as part of that. But then the, the position of uh, seniority of management, you know, came to me. And then I had to learn different skill sets about how do you make profit out of food? How do you then organize your menus? How do you reduce waste? How do you look after people and personnel? All sorts of skills then come into that that then turns you into a chef. Now, once upon a time, not too long in the past, you were a young chef. And you brought a certain set of biases and opinions and skills with you into the arena. Do you see a difference in what these chefs are bringing today? What sort of skills or mindsets are they bringing in that maybe might not have been the prevailing thought processes when you started? Um, there isn't a huge amount of difference. I mean, when I started when I was 15 years old, uh, which is some 37 years ago. Um, and all I was interested in was um, learning and, and absorbing as many skills. And I was just fascinated about food. And it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned the science of food, about what happens when I do this and what is the reaction behind this process. And, and it really fascinated me as, as, an, as an individual. And I think, you know, the modern chefs that are coming in um, have similar skill sets. Um, the most important thing they need to survive in this industry is a passion for food. Uh, and once you have that and you enjoy it, and it's not a job anymore, all of a sudden it's you're getting paid to do your hobby, uh, that's a whole different thing altogether. So um, I suppose the, the, the main difference is 
there's a lot more technology uh, than when I came into the industry. Um, and that's equipment um, and how you can cook things and how you can slow cook and sous vide and all sorts of anti-griddles and very great pieces of technical equipment uh, that wasn't available, you know, 37 years ago. So there's different cooking techniques and processes that, you know, the new chef is bringing to the table as well. Well, I know you're only about three days away, a little over three days from the start of the uh, what's called the YCO 2019. And I want to thank you for taking the time out of your packing to uh, hop on the podcast today. I certainly hope to have the opportunity to chat with you after the competition to get the recap and maybe you can tell us some of the stories that we might not hear about if we just looked at the website or read about it on uh, the news. I would love to. That would be very good. Today it has been my pleasure and privilege to have a conversation with John Wood, the founder and director of Kitchen Cut. John, thanks so much. Safe travels and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. All right, everyone. Unfortunately, that does it for today's episode of the MarketScale Food and Beverage Podcast Show. Hope you enjoyed insight from Rev Chancho and John Wood getting to hear from someone who was actually hosting the 2019 Young Chef Olympiad. It's going on right now. It's just very powerful stuff to see several countries come together behind one event that promotes passion, artistry, and leadership within an industry that is really craving that kind of initiative right now. So... Props to John Wood, props to the entire Young Chef Olympiad team, everyone that's putting it together, and good luck to all the contestants. I'm definitely going to be following along and keeping track of the best dishes they make and who comes out on top because I know they're definitely going to lead the charge for the 21st century of restaurateurs. So again, thank you everyone for listening, and if you like what you heard, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.